Hey guys, it's Emma and Shannon and welcome back to our podcast, She's an Engineer. Today we're going to be talking about engineering ethics and sharing a couple case studies we found in our research. So first of all, we're going to talk about the basics of engineering ethics just to give an overview of ethical obligations as an engineer in the workforce. So the three basic ethical obligations are to the public, to your employer or your client, and to other professionals. So these are not mutually exclusive, and all of these factors, so the public, your employer, and other professionals, need to be considered at all time. And you need to have professional integrity. So integrating ethics within your work means that you will have professional integrity. Yeah, and I'm sure a lot of you have heard about engineering ethics in your classes, but I think it's very important to keep in mind because a lot of engineering professions work directly with the public and impacts public health. So there are seven different principles that impact each obligation as an engineer. The first one being protecting the public health, safety, and welfare. And obviously this is very important, the public health um, and safety of people who are going to be impacted by the project is the number one goal. The second principle is demonstrating professional competence. Third one is maintaining objectivity and truthfulness. I feel like those kind of kind of go hand in hand, competence in your engineering profession, and also making sure you're being truthful. And when you put your engineering stamp, I know civil engineering, mechanical engineering, when you put your engineering stamp on something, it means that you fully back that project and you have pretty much full responsibility if something goes wrong. So you're putting a lot on the line and uh, using your name to do so. Yeah. The fourth principle is addressing conflicts of interest. The fifth one is preserving confidentiality. So I think preserving confidentiality is really important, especially considering if you're dealing with the public and if you're dealing with more of a healthcare-related study, so for like bioengineers, the patients that you treat, definitely you have to keep their information secret. Yeah, I think addressing conflicts of interest and preserving confidentiality are really relevant in bioengineering, especially if you go on to become a doctor. Yeah. (laughs) And then the sixth principle is receiving and providing valuable consideration. So I think that just means that you try to get enough feedback from others. I'm pretty sure that that's what it means to improve your work. Mm, Okay, yeah. That is a good thing. I always appreciate constructive feedback on all my projects, and it's good to keep learning. Yeah. And then the last one is addressing any emerging areas or emerging challenges. Maybe this goes hand in hand with the previous one, just making sure when you come across a question or something you don't know that you're making sure you find a reputable answer. So within these principles, there are a few factors you need to consider. So for when you are protecting the public health safety and welfare, you should conform with the applicable standards. So I know different engineers have different standards for their work. So let's say that you're supposed to filter the water so that the lead isn't above like 0.001% or something like that in terms of content. Uh, You need to make sure that you conform to that standard that is either placed by the ASCE or your local government or the federal government. 
The EPA. Yes, that's... The lead and copper rule. (laughs) Yeah. And then the second one is approval or signing and sealing of engineering drawings. So like Shannon said before, you place your stamp of approval on the drawings or whatever project that you're making. The third part is to have a person who is responsible. So it says responsible charge or responsible control. So just make sure that you're identifying someone who is responsible for the work. The fourth one is awareness of safety violations. So obviously if you're building a bridge or if you are conducting maybe a study on vaccines, you need to make sure that your patients are safe and that whoever is going to cross the bridge will be safe. And then the last one is awareness of legal practice. So this goes for, I think, every profession, just to make sure that everything that you're doing is legal in accordance with all the federal and local regulations. Yeah, and there's a few general ways to demonstrate your professional competence. The first being having an education or the experience and qualifications needed for a job and making sure you're always learning, especially if you have a PE license and you have to take classes each year to make sure you're continuing your education. So you're staying up to date on new technologies and new design and new techniques. Going along with your experience and qualifications, another way to demonstrate your professional competence is make sure you're accepting work that you know how to do. So make sure you're accepting work that you feel confident doing. The third way This is kind of what you said before. Sealing and signing your work. So when you do finish a project or an assignment, making sure that when you put your stamp and your sealing and signing off your work, you completely back everything that you're doing. Another way to demonstrate your professional competence is coordination of work. So I think this means if there is a part of a project outside of your area of expertise, you're making sure you're coordinating with other people who have the knowledge you need? Yeah, I think let's say that you're more experienced in, so for like computer engineering, you're more experienced doing back-end things, but there's a front-end thing that you have to do for this project and you can like recruit other people on your team who are maybe better at those sort of things or have more experience to, to do that work. Exactly. And then the last thing is scope of practice. Like I mentioned before, making sure that whatever you're practicing is within your licensed PE area and just general knowledge. And of course, I think all of these things apply to group work in general too. So when you're doing all of this, you should also be aware of everything that your group members are doing, so making sure that they're also following the standards that have been set. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, because I feel like a lot of engineering work is group work, or at least you're coordinating different parts of a project with different people and making sure that once the project all comes together, you're all happy and satisfied and you feel very confident. Right, because when you're signing off on the work, you're not only signing off on your work, you're signing off on everyone else's work too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so why is it important that we study engineering ethics? I think, well, we talk about this, about engineering ethics a lot in class, but I think it's really important because 
it's important to understand the standards governing what is acceptable behavior in the practice of engineering and especially when you're dealing with the public or even your coworkers or the clients that you're dealing with if you are not following the acceptable ethical standards then people could get injured there could be property damage you could lose your job you could affect your employer's reputation in industry and you could just you could affect a lot more people than just yourself mhm yeah and i think so different from doctors i guess doctors work directly on people and can see the direct impact of their work but like with engineers when you're designing a project you don't always see it to the end or like see it after it's in place so and then realizing the scope of how many people are going to use that bridge every day or how many people are going to drink that water and there's a lot on the line if you mess up to the public's health so just making sure that your your ethics are up to up to par or I guess along the lines of the federal and state and local governments along with like your own morals too yeah definitely and also make sure that whatever you're doing is legal. I think that's like really important too because you don't want to do a project and then have to defend yourself in terms of the legality of the project or whatever you did with the project. Okay. So I think we should start off with a couple of case studies that we found that are related to ethics within engineering, within research, and within the medical field. So the first one is about Henrietta Lacks. Um, I know, Shannon, you read The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. Yes, I did. I read it a few months ago. I'd, I'd recommend that. It's really good. I haven't, like, finished it, but I started it. And I've already learned a lot about Henrietta Lacks from other engineering ethics classes or medical ethics classes. But I still think that, I don't know, her story is just really interesting. Okay, so why don't we start off with talking about who exactly was Henrietta Lacks? Like, what is her story? Why is she important? In 1951, Henrietta Lacks was a young mother of five, and she visited the Johns Hopkins Hospital complaining of vaginal bleeding. So when examined, Dr. Howard Jones, a gynecologist at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, he discovered a large malignant tumor on her cervix. So at the time, the Johns Hopkins Hospital was actually only one of the few hospitals that treated poor African Americans, which is who Henrietta Lacks was. She fell into that category. Henrietta Lacks grew up in a rural area of Virginia, and she grew up very poor and like lived with a lot of extended family, and they had their whole little kind of like town set up that was called Laxtown. And if you are interested in more detail on Henrietta's entire life, I would definitely recommend reading the book, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. But after she grew up, she moved to the Baltimore area with her husband, and then they raised five children, and they still were kind of like struggling with money. And I think that is kind of a big part of this story too. Right. Yeah. And also... At the time, their informed consent wasn't really a thing. So, I mean, her story is especially 
interesting and especially important, I think, because it led to practicing informed consent when people realized, oh, there's something ethically wrong about this. But we'll get to that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yes. Okay. So going on with her medical treatment at the Johns Hopkins Hospital. So as her medical records show, she began undergoing radium treatments for her cervical cancer. This was the best medical treatment option available at the time for cervical cancer. And actually, when they did a biopsy, they took a biopsy as in they took some of the cancer cells from the from the tumor to test them. They they took a sample of her cancer cells. Also, when they took a sample of her cells, I believe she was pretty much on her deathbed, and there's a little bit of discrepancy whether she actually gave the okay to use her cells for medical research, because her family was not there when they asked her, and then she was also kind of, you know, not in a great state mentally, so her family's unsure if she actually ever said, yeah, you can take a sample and use it for research. Right. So... Yeah, I think it's important when people are not fully there to have to have designated like a person who is, Mm -hmm. I don't know if that makes sense, to designate someone who is in charge of their medical decisions and in charge of like consenting for them and making sure to discuss with them beforehand, let's say they don't want, they want a DNR. So let's say this person doesn't want to be resuscitated, let if they were to have like a cardiac arrest or something like that, like that person would know and would be able to make these informed medical decisions for them. Mm -hmm. Especially because there's back then there wasn't any paperwork that she signed specifically to say that it was okay. Yeah. Yeah. Which is definitely a big issue. I think that's one of the biggest issues uh, impacting this ethical case study. So what happened was this sample was sent to this researcher's nearby tissue lab. This researcher was a prominent cancer and virus researcher, and he had been collecting cells from all patients who came to John Hopkins Hospital with cervical cancer. I wonder, though, if he got informed consent from these patients, too. I am not sure. I don't know, but only Henrietta Lacks this study has really been published or has been discussed but I'm wondering about the other patients but maybe people don't discuss them because unlike Henrietta Lacks's cells which are still like kind of alive and being used for research today those cells are not so those cells quickly died in his lab like right after he got them so he discovered that Henrietta Lacks's cells were unlike any of the others he had ever seen Where other cells would die, Henry Nalax's cells doubled every 20 to 24 hours. So now these cells are called HeLa cells, H-E-L-A, and they are used to study the effects currently of toxins, drugs, hormones, and viruses on the growth of cancer cells without experimenting on humans. And I think this is really a good, good thing for research, but it's not good that they probably didn't get informed consent, but it's really great for for the progression of research on cancer um, to not have to use a human subject to test 
the effects of certain treatments because obviously that could really negatively affect a person, you know, like an actual patient. They have also been used to test the effects of radiation and poisons to study the human genome to learn more about how viruses work, and they also played a crucial role in the development of the polio vaccine. So she passed away in October 4th, 1951, so not long after she was diagnosed with cervical cancer, unfortunately, and she was only 31, but today her cells are still alive and impacting the world of research. Yeah, and I think... It is really interesting that her cells went on to play crucial roles in the medical field and discovering vaccines. But something really important to note is that although the particular lab did not end up selling the samples of cells, they actually gave them out to whatever researchers wanted them for free. um, As long as they kind of like backed it up with what they're going to be doing. But when other people got hold of these cells they started to create little companies or manufacture the cells and like sell them off and I know a lot of people made money from selling Henrietta Lacks cells and her family never really saw that money at all so her cells are like some of the most famous cells in the world but her family never benefited from uh, all of their discoveries Yeah, they never profited from them. But actually today, after, I think it's more recently, there's like a board of people who decide what to do with HeLa cells, with Henrietta Lacks' cells. And the board or the group that decides that, like a member of Henrietta Lacks' or like a descendant of Henrietta Lacks' has to be on the board for the board to make the decision now oh wow that's really interesting because i know they also have like a henrietta Lacks foundation website Mm -hmm. where you can go there and learn about the cells and maybe donate money i'm I'm not exactly sure if they have other scholarship funds but it is really interesting that her name because her cells were known as gila for so long and a lot of people did not know the name of the actual patient where the cells came from and I knew that after reading the book um, in the news field a lot of people were like making up names for Henrietta Lacks and like trying to figure out her story but no one really knew until quite recently. Yeah and I think quite recently is when they've instituted that policy that a family member has to be on the board to decide what to do with her cells. I mean it's good that they're doing it now but it's very late I would say. Yeah, it is a little late. But <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, so through this case study, we can look at the different ethical considerations, things that they did that were unethical. So first of all, I think the most important thing is the lack of informed consent. So in the 1950s, when she was hospitalized, there were no established practices for informing or obtaining consent from patients when retrieving cell or tissue samples for research purposes, and there weren't any regulations on the use of patient cells in research. So it was really common practice at Johns Hopkins for extra samples to be collected from cervical cancer patients during biopsies to be used for research purposes, regardless of their race or their socioeconomic status. So regardless of the patient, they just took the cells for research use. They didn't 
have a policy that said that said that these patients would sign a form saying that they allowed their cells to be used for research purposes. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think they definitely do that now. Informed consent is one of the biggest things that they teach in the medical practice or in the medical field or in clinical research today. They make sure that they emphasize informed consent and meaning informed consent. So it's not just telling someone like, hey, we're going to take a sample of your cells for research and not really tell them what's going on. Informed consent means that you're going to explain to them what's going to happen and all the possible complications of like any procedure that they're going to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So what resulted from this case? So like what types of policies resulted from this case? We obviously talked about informed consent. So now definitely this like wouldn't happen. This type of study wouldn't happen. Doctors are not allowed to take extra tissue for research without someone's consent. So if researchers want to take tissue or blood for research, federal law requires informed consent. But if they're taken for diagnostic purposes, so for example, if you have a biopsy that is done that is trying to determine whether or not your your cells from the tumor are malignant or benign, or if you have your appendix removed, as long as the researcher has gotten approval, for example, from IUCUC or another institution like that, to do the research using these samples and your name or anything connecting you to the samples is removed, the researcher doesn't need to get your consent. But if your name and your personal information is connected to the samples, then they do have to get informed consent, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this was such a critical case in the whole regulations of informed consent. I think it's really interesting that that as long as like none of your information is collected to the tissue, if they're like completely separated from your personal human, so as long as they're not being used for like clinical research that they need to say like, oh, like these are specific patients um, for that, then they don't need to have informed consent, which I think Mm -hmm. is interesting, like giving, like unknowingly still giving someone the use of your tissues, even if they have already been taken from your body and uh, for other purposes is interesting because I feel like I would want to know if my tissue is being used or if like my appendix is being used for research Mm -hmm. yeah yeah that is really interesting okay so now that we've talked enough about informed consent and Henry Lax, why don't we get into our second case study so the second case study is the Tacoma Narrows Bridge in Tacoma Washington And this bridge was built during the 1930s and opened to traffic on July 1st, 1940. And it spanned the Puget Sound from Gig Harbor to Tacoma, which is 40 miles south of the Seattle area. And the channel is about a mile wide where the bridge crossed. And at the time the bridge was constructed, this was the third longest suspension bridge in the world, spanning 5,959 feet. At the time, the bridge was the most flexible bridge ever constructed, and it was very lightweight. But one thing that they didn't take into consideration during this time was the aerodynamics and the wind factor. So 
In November of 1940, the Tacoma Narrows Bridge actually collapsed after twisting and turning in some mild wind. This is like the very popular video of the the black and white video of the bridge where it like starts lifting on each side and like twisting and like pieces of the bridge start falling down into the river and then it completely collapsed. Oh yeah, actually I've seen that I think. Yeah, yeah. Luckily no one was injured. I think everyone was able to safely evacuate from the bridge. But one thing interesting was at this time, they really were confused why it collapsed and they had no clue why all of a sudden this, you know, longest suspension bridge also with a bunch of new flexible technology collapsed. So the state of Washington, insurance companies, and the United States government appointed a board of experts to investigate the collapse and the Federal Works Administration appointed a three-member panel of top-ranking engineers, and they came up with a report of their findings. So in March of 1941, the next year, the appointed Board of Engineers announced all of their findings, and they said that the random action of turbulent wind in general caused the bridge to fail. The explanation was kind of the first to really investigate the aerodynamics and influence of wind and like wind-induced motion on a bridge. So there were three important findings that came out of the study. The first being that the principal cause of the 1940 Narrows Bridge failure was due to its excessive flexibility. It was way too flexible, which allowed the wind to really really move the bridge and um, cause one of the main rope suspensions to like slide and then once that slid the weight was just like not distributed out properly on the bridge and like pieces started to fall off and that kind of is what caused it to fall down. So the second finding was the solid plate girder and deck acted as an aerofoil so it created drag and lift And then the third finding was the aerodynamic forces were little understood and engineers needed to test suspension bridges using models in a wind tunnel. Okay, so a couple factors contributed to its flexibility. One, that the bridge deck was way too light and the deck was really shallow at only eight feet. Additionally, the side spans were too long compared to the length of the center span and the cables were anchored at a great distance from the side spans. And then lastly, also the width of the deck was extremely narrow. All of this caused the bridge to be super light and any, even though this was a mild wind occurrence, it just caused the bridge to really move about. And the pivotal event in the bridge collapse was when the when it was a change from the vertical waves of the wind to like the twisting torsional motion. And then this event was associated with the slippage of the cable band on the north cable at mid-span. And normally the main cables are of equal length where the mid-span cable attaches to them from the deck. When the band slipped, the north cable became separated into two different segments of unequal length. And the imbalance there translated to the thin flexible plate girders which easily easily twisted and it just progressively cracked and fell apart causing more failure. So the most significant finding 
was that the engineering community needs to better understand aerodynamics in very long suspension bridges. And their blind spot of this was really the root of the problem. And at the time, there seemed to be almost no recognition of the the motions when created and the vertical movements along with the torsional movements. Sorry, wait, I have a question. So at the time, did... Were there no other suspension bridges that had collapsed in this way? That's a good question. Yeah, this was the first really big one. I'm curious because this was the third longest suspension bridge in the world. I'm wondering where the first and the second were located. Actually, compared with the Brooklyn Bridge, which was built in the late 1890s, I believe, that bridge is like really hefty and like thick and like very... not over-designed, but like well-designed in its structure. And during the late 1930s and 40s, when they designed this bridge, they decided to go with like a new sleek, modern look. So it was one of the first of those types of bridges. Okay. And that's why it failed. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So previous bridges were more sturdy and would be able to withstand more wind and more weight. Exactly. So although they weren't intentionally designing for wind previously, because they were heavier, the wind wasn't able to pick them up and um, cause the motion. So they were like unintentionally designing for that force. Okay. Yeah. So originally when the bridge collapsed, they thought it was just because of heavy traffic and poor workmanship. They didn't, no one realized why, why it actually collapsed till, till after the board of engineers had their report after this collapse started to test their samples in wind tunnels and um, taking that into account. Oh, also, this bridge collapse revealed the limitations of deflection theory. So now instead of just taking in consideration the weight of the cars on the bridge, it was also taking into consideration minor wind effects because it can have a major effect on the bridge. So this case study went on to give invaluable information and brought engineers closer to designing safe and economical suspension bridges against wind action. And so coming out of this were actually two really famous... construction bridges. One, the Mackinac Bridge, which we talked about in a previous episode, connecting the two different areas of Michigan. And um, and also the Verrazano Narrows Bridge in New York City. So because of this failure, engineers were able to really learn from their mistakes and to create some incredible bridges that are still lasting today. Yeah, that's really good. I mean, I'm Mm -hmm. sure that most lessons that engineers or people in other professions have learned are from mistakes that have been made in the past. So I feel like you can't really learn anything until something happens. And it's just really good that like no one, no one was hurt when this Mm -hmm. bridge collapsed. Yeah, it is really lucky that no one, no one ended up dying from this accident. Yeah. (laughs) And we were able to make great progress in engineering. So Yeah. yeah. So there has been progress made. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. I guess we'll move on to our third case study now. Okay. So let's talk about the Tuskegee syphilis study. So this is a study that is often brought up also in ethical research classes. 
I've actually encountered this study in many of my ethics classes, whether that be at work or in school. So this study actually took place in Macon County, Alabama, what is referred to as the quote-unquote black belt because of its rich soil and vast number of black sharecroppers who were the economic backbone of the region. Tuskegee is the institute that is contained within Macon County, Alabama. So the research itself can... Uh, took place on the campus of the Tuskegee Institute. So this happened in 1932, where the Public Health Service started working with the Tuskegee Institute to begin a study. So this study, what they wanted to do, the goal of the study was to record the natural history of syphilis in hopes of justifying treatment programs for Blacks. So when I say this, and I say that the intent of this study was to record the natural history of syphilis in Blacks, this means that they didn't treat these patients at all. So they wanted to see the disease progression of these patients, and they wanted to see what would happen with the disease. Let's say, like, people would go blind or something like that, like, any effects that would come from the disease without treatment which is kind of concerning. So when the study was initiated, actually there were no proven treatments for this specific disease for syphilis. And actually the researchers who were working with these men, because this was only men um, who were participating in the study, they actually didn't tell them that they had syphilis. They told them that they were to be treated for bad blood. And at that time, bad blood could have referred to any amount or any host of like diagnosable ailments that include anemia, fatigue, and syphilis. So, so they didn't know they had syphilis. They were just like recruited to be part of the study because the researchers knew that they had syphilis. So initially, this study involved 600 black men, 399 of them had syphilis. So they were the experimental group, meaning the group that they were recording the natural history of untreated syphilis in and then 201 of these men didn't have the disease so they were the control group so most of these men that they recruited for this study they were poor and illiterate sharecroppers from the county and they were it was conducted without the benefit of patients informed consent which is a big problem and they didn't receive any proper treatment to cure their illness but they told them that in exchange for taking part in the study, they would receive free medical exams when they went to the institute to be studied for this research study. Free meals went only when they went to the institute to, to participate in the research and also burial insurance. And initially, they were told that they would only be part of the study for six months but the study actually went on for 40 years, which is crazy. Yeah, that's that wasn't part of the initial plan. So they, honestly, these men were pretty excited because, you know, they didn't really have appropriate medical care before or survivor's insurance. So they also got rides to and from the clinics and free treatment for minor, minor ailments, like if they got a cold or other small things. 
and then also burial stipends paid to their survivors, so like their spouse or their children. And so actually, during the course of this study, during the 40 years of the study, in 1947, penicillin actually became the standard treatment for syphilis, but because these men were participating in the study, they were actually, penicillin was withheld as a part of treatment for both the experimental and the control group. So they weren't oh. allowed to get any life-saving treatment for their syphilis. I guess my question is, so the study started in 1932 and then went till 1972? Yes. That's... Wow. Okay. And then penicillin was discovered as a treatment in 1947. Yeah. So there's a lot of time in between there could have been used. Yeah. So okay. like 15 years with into the study and then 25 years before the end of the study so yeah so i mean they weren't told that they were allowed to get penicillin as treatment also they were working with like these health workers and the health workers like were not allowed to give them penicillin so they were so people who were running the study told these health workers like hey you need to bar these guys these these men from getting penicillin to treat their syphilis because they're part of a research study, which mm-hmm. I think is like not really okay. <laughs> I mean, no. obviously it's not okay. It's very unethical. So what instead they got, they were only given, they were only monitored by these health workers. So like basically they just took notes of like certain things that were affected by syphilis and they were only given placebos such as aspirin and mineral supplements and the phs the public health service researchers they they were the one who convinced the local physicians in macon county um, not to treat the participants yeah and so a lot of these men because they were only given placebos and weren't actually given proper treatment for their syphilis they either went blind or insane or experienced other severe health problems or like died for their untreated syphilis. So actually in July 1972, 40 years after the study had started, there was actually a big news story about the Tuskegee study that ended up ending, like forcing the end of this study. So the Associated Press actually had a story about the Tuskegee study and it caused a public outcry that led the Assistant Secretary for Health and Scientific Affairs to appoint an ad hoc advisory panel to review the study to make sure that it was ethical and to see if they needed to shut down the study. And the panel actually found that the men had agreed freely to be examined and treated but there was no evidence that these researchers had informed them of the study or its real purpose. And actually they were misled and weren't given any of the required facts, like the fact that they had syphilis or Mm -hmm. that they weren't going to be receiving treatment for their syphilis required to provide informed consent. So this is what we mean by informed consent instead of just consent, right? They need to know all the facts before they agree to participate within the study. And also now I think in any study that is being conducted, any clinical trial, any research study, you have to allow the participants to drop from the study. You have to allow them to 
to not continue within the study. Like you can't say like you have to, once you start the study, you have to complete it. They don't do that anymore. And I don't think these people were allowed or even were given the option to leave the study had, had they wanted to. And then, yes, so basically the advisory panel also found nothing to show that subjects were ever given the choice of quitting the study, even when penicillin treatment became widely used as a treatment for syphilis. Um, And they also, so after this whole ethical discussion, they concluded that it was ethically unjustified. So the knowledge gained from the researchers or the knowledge gained by the researchers of this study was sparse when compared with the risk the study posed for its subjects which yes everything needs to you need to like consider all of the all the benefits the cost benefit versus like the risk in terms of a study and then in october 1972 the panel advised stopping the study at once and in november the assistant secretary for health and scientific affairs actually announced the end of the Tuskegee study. But like what happened to these people and their families after the end of the study, right? I mean, they still had syphilis and even, and also I think because they weren't told they had syphilis, I think they also gave, or they also gave syphilis to probably their, their spouses and like, potentially their children I -hmm. think and obviously if these people didn't know they had syphilis either then they weren't able to get treatment for their syphilis either so it doesn't only impact the the people that were in the study it impacts their families as well so actually in the summer a year later in the summer of 1973 a class action lawsuit was filed on behalf of the study participants and their families and a year later a 10 million out of court settlement was reached for the for the 600 study participants and their families. So as part of the settlement, settlement, the U.S. government also promised to give lifetime medical benefits and burial services to all living participants. And the Tuskegee Health Benefit Program was established to provide these services. And then a year later, all the wives, widows, and offspring uh, of the participants of the study were added to the program and then in 1995 20 years later the program was actually expanded to include health as well as medical benefits and the last study participant actually died in january 2004 and there are still 11 offspring that are currently receiving medical and health benefits from this program so Honestly, it's, I'm like glad it ended, but I'm just like surprised that no one who was administering the study or people who were giving medical care to the patients in the study, like no one said anything or was like, this is wrong. Like we should, we should be able to offer them treatment, especially when all you're doing is recording like the progression of syphilis like if there is a treatment available then I think now like you have to offer it to people Mm -hmm. like they don't have to receive treatment but but I think you're required to offer whatever 
the most effective treatment is. Yeah, this went on for 40 years, and there were 600 participants in the study, and it took a news outlet to really out the the project for them to shut down. <laughs> right. Such a long time. I know, and it's just basically an experiment, right? They didn't really do anything for these participants. Like, I feel like also $10 million is not a lot for these 600 participants, their wives mm-hmm. and their children, um, their offspring. And then what they received in exchange for doing the study is also <laughs> not enough. Like receiving some free meals when they go to the center and minor medical care is not not enough. <laughs> in exchange for like their their death, basically. I mean, like, you don't, I don't know if they hadn't participated in this study, if they were to be able to receive this penicillin treatment, but then at least they would have had the option to have penicillin as a treatment to treat their syphilis. Yeah. While, while they were in the study, they, they didn't even know. They weren't given the option. They weren't told they had syphilis, which is crazy. (laughs) It's definitely not okay. I think it's like very clear that the study was very unethical. Yeah. 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 I also wanted to talk about ethics involving like electronics and other things and privacy um, and in terms of like MK Ultra, but I think we're running out of time. So maybe we can do it in a follow up ethics episode. Yeah, I think that sounds good. We'll, we'll add that to a different episode. Yeah, and if you guys have any other ethical studies that you want us to review or talk about on the podcast, definitely go to our website, she's an engineerpodcast.com and leave it in the form there. Yeah, we hope you enjoyed our episode today on engineering ethics, and we'll see you guys again in two weeks. See you. Bye. Bye. Bye.